Last week, Neil gave us an update on the search process and that we were in the final stages of uh, one particular candidate. There's much prayer that's needed. And uh, we beseech you uh, to be in prayer, uh, that the Lord lead us in, in the search, and that the Lord lead the advisory uh, committee as we go through this search, and the elders and the congregation, and particularly the candidate that he's calling, that the Lord lead each one of us, and it's so important. Um, last Wednesday, we had a special prayer meeting, and uh, there were 29 people out, uh, specifically for this uh, search process. And we'd like to meet again this Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. So appreciate your prayers. Please uh, support us in prayers in this endeavor. Last week there was a flyer, or this week, I'm sorry, there's a flyer in the bulletin that gives us a bio of Chris Lenhart. And uh, Chris graciously consented to fill the pulpit this morning because Stan could not be here. And so he's, he's coming. Chris grew up in southern Lancaster County. Uh, he went to Penn Manor High School. We won't hold that against him. Um, and he then uh, pursued the ministry um, uh, by going to Clark Summit University, Liberty University, and Lancaster Bible College, where he uh, was pursuing a doctorate. Chris and Sheila and the three children live in Quarryville, and uh, they have served uh, 14 years at Wesley, which is located uh, south of Quarryville, uh, first as a youth pastor and in the later years as an associate pastor. Uh, Chris's greatest passion is to see Jesus Christ preached in the church and in the community. Uh, Chris has a, a reputation as a gifted Bible teacher, and he loves the word. So let's welcome Chris to the pulpit this morning. Thank you for those words, Dave. It is a privilege to be here with you all this morning to open God's word together with you as we do that. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize this morning that you are completely sovereign over every aspect of our lives. Lord, over the process that Calvary Monument is in, Lord, over the process that you've taken my family through in the last number of months, we recognize your power and your goodness and your faithfulness to us in every step of the journey. And Father, as we open up your word this morning and begin to look at the book of John, we pray that you would direct our minds and direct our hearts to hear your word, that we might leave this place changed, able to take your gospel into the communities that you've placed us in to help our friends and family grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it is a privilege to be here with you this morning. I want you to imagine for a moment with me that you had an opportunity to sit down and to write a book about your life. Every major transition that you have been through would become a chapter. 
every event that, that you had witnessed maybe would be a page. And as you sat down to, wrote, to write, you would consider what events you would put in the book and what events you might leave out of the book. And understanding that words have incredible power and incredible meaning, you would carefully pour over all of the events of your life and and as you were sitting down to write, hopefully what you would find is an incredible testimony of how Jesus has worked in your life from, from day one at birth all the way through to today as you were writing. If you can do this, you may have a closer understanding of the challenges that were facing the gospel writers as they sat down to write the gospels. Matthew Mark, Luke, John. Each of them had an opportunity to be with Jesus, to be with Him as He walked the earth, as He ministered to people. And, and at, the end of their, at the end of His life, as they sat down to reflect and write their Gospels, they had to choose what events they would include in the Gospels and what events they may leave out. And as you would sit down to write and as you might consider what your purpose would be for writing, so would they have to define what their purpose was for writing. We're going to study the Gospel of John this morning. We're going to be in the first chapter of John. And it's very important that as we go into the book of John that we study the Gospel of John in light of the purpose for which he wrote. And, and unlike some of the other gospel writers, John is very, very clear about his intended purpose for writing and why he wrote his gospel. John says this in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 of his books. He said, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Now John would approach reaching his intended purpose for writing a little bit differently than the other gospel writers did. If you notice in some of the other gospels, we begin with genealogies and, and stories that tell us how Jesus came to be and what line He came from, and all of those had an intended purpose as well. But, but John, John has a little bit of a, of a different purpose for writing. And as he opens his book, he clearly exposes what that purpose is. And so the task that he has is to convince his audience, those who are reading the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we ask how would John go about doing this? How would he go about achieving his intended, his intended purpose for writing his book? And this morning, we're going to together look at how John went about achieving that purpose. And he does this by really answering two questions right off the bat in John chapter 1. And the first question is this, who was the Word? Who was he? We're going to see that as we open John 1 today. And the second is this, what did the Word do? And so in light of these two questions, 
our purpose today is twofold. First, we seek to better understand the nature and the identity of the one named the Word. And second, that together we would simply catch a glimpse of His power and His purpose. And let's begin this morning by uncovering how John answers the question, who was the Word? If you have your Bibles, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 5. This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So as we seek to better understand the nature and the identity of who the Word is, it is, in, it is incredibly hard for us to understate the importance of the first verse of John chapter 1. In fact, in, in this first verse alone, we have three magnificent realities regarding the identity of the Word. And the first is this. Right away in the very beginning of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now, John is very intentional in his wording here, in his use of words, he wants us to go back to the beginning. He wants to take us back to the book of Genesis in our thinking. And so when you read that, many of you automatically go back there. You, you see that that's there in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, we see God's creative purposes revealed. John chapter 1, we see God's salvation purposes on full display. Look at the similarities. This is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Now, consider this in light of what we just read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, there are some striking similarities between the books of Genesis and the books of John. And, and I just want to name a few. This isn't all of them, but, but there's a few. In, in, in Genesis chapter 1, as we conclude reading the first chapter of Genesis, we come away with this sense of the majesty of God, who God is. And we're amazed at the power that He has and what He can do. You might say, what a magnificent God. John chapter 1, we're confronted with the majesty and the magnificence of the Word. And we might say, we might proclaim, what a magnificent Savior. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation of, of the physical light. And there's this, there's this incredibly powerful pause at the end of verse 2 in Genesis. Did you ever notice it? It's like, it's like this expectant pause. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And all of us, as we're reading, are probably thinking to ourselves, if we've never read Genesis before, I'm sure many of you have, but if not, what's next? 
What's next? And, and, and right away in verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so Genesis chapter 1, we're introduced to this reality of physical light. And, and this light means everything. Because it reveals something to us about the nature of God and who He is. And in John chapter 1, we're introduced to the true light, spiritual light. And through both of these lights, God is revealing Himself to His creation. In the book of Genesis, we have a man who is brought forth. The first man, his name was Adam. And in John chapter 1, the God-man, Jesus, is brought forth. And as Adam would sin, fall, and bring a curse on all mankind and come to represent the two greatest struggles that we have in this life, sin and death, so would Jesus in the book of John take and bear our sins as a curse. Jesus representing grace and truth. And so right away, from the beginning, we recognize that Jesus, the Word, was with God. And that's the second magnificent reality this morning. You know, if you ask me to tell you about my wife, I could do that. I could tell you a lot about my wife, and many of you in here have never met her before, but you know, I've spent over 15 years with her. And when you spend that much time with a person, you can tell somebody else who doesn't know them a lot about who they are. It'd be all good things, of course. 15 years with a person, what could be bad, right? Jesus has been with God. For eternity. For eternity. And as the word of God, he's with God and he's revealing to us truths about God and who God is. Listen, this is just a few verses down in verse 14 of John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and we know this about the incarnation, about Jesus taking on flesh. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He's revealing, being with the Father, he's able to reveal things, truths to us about the Father and who he is. This is John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we have Jesus with God at the Father's side, Making the Father known to us, revealing truths to us about the nature of who God is. Distinct persons having fellowship and relationship with each other. Now again, if we're coming to the Bible for the first time and, and we're not aware of all of the magnificent truths that are wrapped up in the person of Jesus, there's this anticipatory question that might come to our mind because we, we see that, that this word, Jesus, he's in the beginning and we see that he is indeed with God. And so maybe the anticipatory question is, was he God? Was he God? 
And again, remember John's purpose, the gospel writer's purpose here, is to leave no doubt about the nature and identity of the word and who he is. And so at the end of the first verse of John chapter 1, the third magnificent reality, the word was God. The word was God. Jesus is God. That's so important for us to understand. This is John chapter 14. Verses 8 to 11, Philip, one of the disciples, says to Jesus, he says, Lord, show us the Father. Show, us, show him to us, and, and it'll be enough. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Later on, or earlier on in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says this, I and the Father are one. Not just you united in purpose, but they're also united in their quality of godness. Both are God. The Word is fully God. Now this is part of the Trinitarian mystery that we wrestle with in the church, right? And we, we all sit here together and understand at, at some point or another in our, in our faith walk, we've wrestled with this idea of the Trinity. John Piper says this, quote, we hold fast to this biblical mystery. God the Father and God the Son have such a unity that they are one God, not two, and such a distinction that they are two persons, not one. End quote. And so we find that right away in John chapter 1, verse 1, John sets about his task of convincing us that Jesus is the promised Messiah and God by taking us back to the beginning, by building on the imagery and majesty of God's creation. And John's further going to expose that purpose to us in verse 2. Now, now when we get down to verse 2, we might say, now this, this looks a bit repetitive. And really, it kind of is. I mean, repetition in the Bible is never by accident. God always has something for us when he repeats these truths about himself. And so there's, there's one subtle difference in verse 2. And in verse 2, John sums everything up, he says, in verse 1. But he adds one subtle difference. If you take your eyes down to verse 2 in your Bibles, he was in the beginning with God. Now, now, what I see in verse 1 is that John is communicating to us truths about the nature of God, the God nature of the Word. And why in verse 2, he's communicating something to us about the human nature of the Word as well. In verse 1, there is no personal pronoun. In verse 2, we have a he. Subtle, small, yet significant. Though this, this man is fully God, undiminished deity, there is something about him that we can relate to. 
There's a relatable aspect to his nature for all of man that we can get, that, that we can buy into. He was with God in the beginning. Now, I believe there's two purposes for this repetition. One, this repetition affirms what we already know to be true from earlier reading, right? This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. If we know the first chapter of Genesis, then we, we understand that, that Jesus was with God in the beginning. Look at verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. But this repetition also speaks to us about the value and importance of identity. The word has a personal pronoun. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. So verses 1 and 2 speak to us about the nature and identity of the Word, who He is. And as we go into verses 3 and 5, John will reveal truth about the power and the purpose of the Word, answering the question, what did the Word do? This is verse 3 of John chapter 1. All things were made through Him, And without him was not anything made that was made. What did the word do? Verse chapter, or chapter one, verse three, he created everything. He created everything. And we often assign all of the creative powers and the creative purposes to God of the Godhead, but John chapter one reveals to us that Jesus was deeply involved in this process of creation as well. Not anything was made that he did not make. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It speaks of this reality like this. He is the image, Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, there's one observation here in this verse. There's there's two times in the book of John where he uses the statement, apart from me. It's, it's It's a statement and a phrasing, and it's actually used here in this verse. It's also used in John chapter 15, verse 5. And, and the two apart from him statements, right? So apart from him, nothing was created that has been created. And we also know John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? So there's these two apart from me statements in the book of John, and they're very closely related and connected with each other. The apart from me statement in John chapter 1 shows us that he is the source of life, and apart from him there is no life. And the apart from me statement in John chapter 5, and this in 15 verse 5, this is it, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So apart from Jesus, there is no life. 
And apart from Jesus, there is no purpose. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the idea here is if we are to have the truest, the fullest, and the most fulfilling life possible, it can only be found in the one who's created us and given us life. It's also important here that we recognize that this verse leaves absolutely no room for belief that Jesus himself was created. There are some groups out there, some who would even identify as Christian groups that believe that Jesus was created. He was an angel, he was created. But but this verse absolutely destroys that foundational argument. There's no possible way because, again, it affirms that there was not anything There wasn't anything made that he didn't make. So if there was nothing made that he didn't make, how how was he created? Not anything exists apart from him. What else did he do? He gave life to all humanity. This is verse 4 of John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You know, Jesus has life within himself. Isn't that a beautiful reality? He doesn't rely on anyone else for his existence. He's completely existent within himself. He holds all life together, what we read in Colossians. But there are some biblical worldview realities regarding the nature of life in this verse, and they're incredibly powerful. When you want to talk about the nature of life, this John chapter 1, verse 4, brings us face to face with a biblical worldview concerning the nature of life. And in verse 4 alone, there's two affirmations. The first is this, life is eternal. Life is eternal. In Him was life, and Jesus is eternal. The second is this, and this is hugely important. Biblical worldview reality. Life came before matter. Life before matter. If we are to believe and to hold a biblical worldview and and understand our origins and the origins of our universe, it's, it's important that we understand it according to how God has given it to us in His Word. In John chapter 1, verse 4, we, we're confronted with the reality that life's eternal and that life came before matter. Also, consider how this verse is closely related to John's purpose for writing. Go all the way back to, to the beginning when we talked about John's purpose. At the very end of that statement, that you may believe and have life in his name. That verse, his purpose, and this verse are closely connected to one another. A third action that Jesus did, Jesus accomplished for us, is he brought unconquerable light into darkness. This is verse 5 of John chapter 1. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, there are a few realities about light, and one of them is this. Light is always victorious over darkness. If we were to turn all the lights off in this sanctuary and and to make it incredibly dark, close, well, there's no blinds. Maybe there are, I don't know. Cover the windows. 
to make it pitch black. And just one of you, just one person in a pitch black room were to take out a, a cell phone and to just push a button on it. Light. And, and we'd all recognize it. Light always dispels darkness. You can go to a movie theater, and you know, they're really comfortable these days, right? They got the leather seats and the recliners. The only problem with that is you have to, you have to like reserve your seat like a month in advance in order to go to the movies anymore. So you, you go to the movie theater, and everything's dark, and you're sitting, and you're getting ready to enjoy the movie, and you notice something in the row right in front of you. Somebody did not silence their cell phone. Or they silenced it, but they're playing on it during the movie. And it's distracting, because light dispels darkness. Light is always victorious over darkness. The second reality is this. When I was young, we used to go camping uh, quite a bit. And one of the things you do when you go camping a lot of times, at least maybe once during the week, is you go out for a night hike. Or you go out at night and you walk around. And so I remember we'd go out on these hikes, and, and we'd go far away from the campsite we were camping at. And the further you got from the campfire, the darker it would get. You'd turn your flashlights on, and you'd get so excited on your way back when you would see off in the distance the, the slow, dim glow of the campfire. And you knew it represented something. You knew that it represented that there were people around, that, that there was life there, that something cool was back there. You wanted to get back there. Your sleeping bag was back there. Your tent was back there. And the closer you got to the light, the clearer you could see. The closer you came, the more obvious things became about what was happening back at the campsite. And so it is with Jesus. He brings us the light to reveal to us the mysteries and the beauty and the majesty of God and who he is. Sadly, though, there's a reality about this, and it's the cultural context in which we live. This is not new. It's the same context into which Jesus was born. If you look at John chapter 3, verse 19, He's talking to one of the Pharisees, and he says, this is the judgment. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Works were evil. Oh, sorry. I think that mic came on. It's all right. <laughs> this is a very true and sobering reality. It is still true and exists in our culture today. Our cultural environment is the same. If you turn on the news today, many different opportunities, many different news outlets, what do we see? Violence. It's everywhere. Our country is wrapped in economic and racial tensions. There's an identity crisis in our nation. We can't even agree anymore on what it means to be a man or a woman. Authority issues plague our nation. A lack of trust in the government and in law enforcement. And people love the darkness 
more than the light. And all of the wars and the human trafficking and the terrible things that are taking place are evidences of this reality every single day. And you know, there are a lot of emotions and feelings that follow these realities. And we can just see it. We don't have to look much further than than outside the doors of our own homes to find negativity, to find blaming, no one taking responsibility for their actions, complaining, constant criticism, defending, bitterness, hopelessness, guilt, shame. But here's what we know to be true according to the scriptures. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says this, For at one time you were darkness. You walked in these ways. You participated in these things. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Our lives should reflect the truth of the one who has rescued us from the darkness. Our lives should be characterized as lives that are lived in the light, not the darkness. Jesus has given us the ability to live victoriously, eternally. He has won eternal victory for us. His light is continually uh, dispelling and overcoming the darkness. We can have great hope when our culture and our world says it's hopeless because he's been great hope for us. We can have great joy even in the midst of our suffering because we trust with faith that God is using it to produce something good within us that might help us grow or help someone else grow in their walk with him. We can have great peace in the midst of turmoil because we rest on the truth and the reality that he is in control of all things. And he's already gone before us and fought the battles that we might face. And finally, we can be abundantly thankful because of who he is for us and what he's done. We have no reason to have our lives characterized by fear or anxiety or doubt or worry or grief or shame. Those things should be foreign concepts to us, but hope and joy and love and peace, the fruit of the Spirit. As children walking In the reality of his magnificent light, we should be the most hopeful, the most loving, the most joyful, the most thankful, the most full of peace individuals on the planet. People might think we're weird because it looks so different. When you think about it, these are counter-cultural realities in our world today. They're very different than what we see when we turn on the TV or we read the newspaper. In the face of insecurity, fear, doubt, and all of the other emotions and feelings that plague our neighborhoods, we live 
differently. Our lives look differently. Children of love with a nature of love, shining as beacons, reflecting the light of Christ in our daily lives and actions. You know, the youth here at CNBC and their leaders have an incredible opportunity to do this this week, don't they? To take the light of the gospel and the reality of Jesus and who he is and to shine that light on the streets of New York City. What a magnificent opportunity. You know, there's an Awana program here at Calvary Monument. What a magnificent opportunity to invest in the lives of young children, to shine the light of the gospel and and to magnify the reality of who Jesus is and to help spiritually form the identities of the children that God has brought to Calvary Monument Church. What an incredible opportunity. As I get to know more and more about Calvary Monument, I I see and recognize all the missionaries that the church supports. And what an incredible opportunity to hear from them and hear how Jesus is taking the light into all different parts of the world. So the goal is this. At the end of our lives, the pages of the book that we have written might proclaim with great boldness and unspeakable joy that we wrote these things, that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. My great hope, our great hope should be shared. It should be this, that our lives would be a powerful testimony of the nature and identity of our Savior, and that through us, Jesus might make his power and his purpose known to others. Let's pray. God, we are incredibly thankful for your word. For who he is. And for who Jesus has been for us. Conquering our doubts and fears with his marvelous light being magnificently powerful in our deepest struggles, being completely sufficient in our days of fear and doubt and worry. Lord, we're so thankful that we serve a risen Savior who's alive, who's active, and is working on our behalves. Help us be obedient to all that you call us to this week. In Jesus' name we pray.